The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, this is Matthew Sweezy, author of The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media, and you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Matthew Sweezy, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? Doing good, my friend. Good to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. You were a recent guest. Now, uh, where are you? Are you in Charleston? Quarantining in the sunny town of Charleston. Oh, yeah, no complaints there. Well, what is going on in your quarantined world? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I mean, same with everyone. You know, you're either overworked, underworked, uh, overexposed. I think someone told me they had to, uh, you know, de-stress and get away from their family, so they're excited to get back into the office. But yeah, I think we're all in the in some kind of form of crazy. Yeah. Well, Matthew, I'm going to be completely honest with you. The reason I do this daily series is what I call Doug Daycare, because I'm giving my family a break. And by extension, Matthew Sweezy, you are now a great humanitarian. <laughs> You're relieving them of an hour of having to listen to really stupid dad jokes. But hey, <laughs> you know, that's that's the deal. Well, now, my sense was that you traveled quite a bit um, yeah. wor- working for Salesforce. Did, did you have a lot of speaking engagements and so forth canceled? Oh yeah, I had a massive amount of speaking engagements canceled. Um, I had a, you know, I launched a book in March. So the book came out March twenty fourth, which was not when you want to launch a book or a book tour. Um, but you know, we'd spent you know four years getting it up to that point, so we let it go. And um, yeah, so most all of the entire six months that I had planned for speaking engagements, pretty much just either pivoted to virtual or just went away. But you know what? At least you got it launched. I've spoken to a number of authors whose book was put on ice, and maybe for good reasons. And, but there was one author whose book was supposed to come out this month, and it's got moved to the next year. And I said, oh, are you going to update it? You know, mention the, the coronavirus. And he said, well, the problem is they've already printed 150,000 of these, and they're in a warehouse. They just didn't want to launch it. <laughs> 
Good so, Lord. More yeah. power to that guy for getting 150000 printed. Oh, it's Martin Lindstrom. You probably- Oh, yeah. Uh, no, Martin. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's a, he's a New York Times bestseller. So, at any rate, well, now, before we go much further, there may be a new listener on the show. So, you, uh, Matthew Sweezy, were on episode 273, and tomorrow I publish episode 284. And I published that interview in April 2020, and we I interviewed you. I went back to my notes in February of 2020, so yeah, just yeah. before everything started changing. For so for for new listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast, please introduce yourself and tell them who you are and and what you do. Sure, um, my name obvious Matthew Sweezy. Um, fun fact: uh, my Twitter handle is M Sweezy, and if you read that really quickly, as someone has told me, then you realize that I have gotten the handle of Miss Sweezy on Twitter. Uh, that's always the fun fact for me. Um, I'm director of market strategy at Salesforce, um, and really what that means is I focus on the future of marketing and really help um, you know share those insights both internally as well as with some of the top uh, businesses in the world to kind of help shape their future business strategy. And when I look at your LinkedIn profile, it's like uh, it's, it's not like a uh, a thing where you, you you catch mice or those things that catch the but the the, the roaches. But I, I I just stop what I'm doing because you're always posting such interesting stuff, you know. And hey, I was a former ad guy, so I'd like to equate myself with a cockroach. But you know, it's all about resurrection. So now, wait a minute. There's something else that's even more important uh, uh, that people should know about Matthew Sweezy. One. You're an avid outdoorsman, but two, you are co-owner of a brewery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess we launched that back in. I think we started going down that road in 2011. We were the seventh microbrewery to ever open in the state of Georgia. Um, and in that picture uh, is my beer, uh, Eventide. Um, so launched that brand, got to do all the, I mean, what marketer doesn't want an alcohol brand, right? So it's like, come on, you know? So that was just a dream, dream come true. And, um, you know, still around, still making beer. So it's, uh, it's going well. Well, where is it, uh, sold? Uh, all of Georgia. So, uh, only in the state of Georgia. So if you're in Georgia or if you're in Atlanta and want to go head down to Grant Park, you can uh, go down and check us out. And uh, is it possible to buy Eventide at the Atlanta airport? It is. Uh, you can. There's a restaurant called Poppy's that carries it. Oh, excellent. That's where I'm going to go someday if I ever get on an airplane again. <laughs> um, because sometimes that's the only place in, in Georgia I get to go. Although, as we were discussing, uh, we own property there. And my, my brothers and my ancestors, a lot of them were from Georgia. And I think it was the very next county from where uh, your my, family was from. Family. Yeah, and I, yeah, actually, my grandfather's brother then moved over to the county where your family's from. So it's just a small, tiny world. I wow. mean, I don't think people, we're talking we're talking towns of five thousand people. For those that are listening, that's the big city, and the little towns that we're talking about are two hundred people outside of these towns. So, small, like Washington, Georgia, I think is the nearest uh, town to where our property is, for sure. And that's the county seat of Wilkes County, which it's rumored that that's where the Confederate gold was hidden. So uh, I don't know about you, but um, I've been pretty active with the old metal detector on our property down there. And, uh, you know. <laughs> Let me know if you need a hand dig. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, your colleague, Tiffany Bova, was on uh, Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. We had a great conversation. And uh, her book, Growth IQ, just today I was doing a webinar for a sales and marketing organization in Boston, Sammy. And uh, again, I can't, I, I could not talk about 
her book. And uh, I told her that, you know, she's been going on trips with me and she just doesn't know it when I go make presentations. And then your book came along. Uh, I heard a lot from the listeners about uh, the, the context marketing revolution. And then I think you and uh, Tiffany mentioned there was a third book uh, from one of your colleagues about uh, customer experience coming maybe next year. Is that right? Yeah. It's actually coming later this year, and that's uh, Karen. Um, oh. Karen Manji's got that coming out. Um, I think it's later in the year, uh, and there's yeah, there's a bunch. Of, she's got a couple. She's got a couple things up her sleeve, so you'll be hearing from Karen. Really? Twice. You're gonna put in oh, a good yeah. word? Yeah. Don't forget the little people. Don't forget the podcaster <laughs> people. But uh, you know, I would love uh, to be able to do that. So um, we should do that now. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, ask, another thing that's probably more important than anything we can talk about as it relates to marketing and, and all this, is you uh, are a, a Georgia Bulldog. You're a graduate of the University of Georgia. Correct. Any speculation or, or, or uh, opinion on whether there's going to be college football in the fall? You know, that's the probably the oddest thing about me is I don't even know a thing. I, I I don't care about football. Like, like, I was like, wait a second. You do realize that fall is deer season, right? So for those that <laughs> I would, avid outdoorsmen grew up in the woods, so I would always prefer to be outside than in a stadium. So I just never really was into it. But Is that yeah, why you had to tickets. leave Georgia and now you're in South Carolina? Did, were you banned from the state? No, I'm kidding. No, I'm a, I'm a deer hunter too. And I, I, I don't go to a lot of football games because I'd rather spend my weekends doing something else, which is, um, this is what's pathetic. I will go deer hunting and very often I'm in a stand and I bring the next week's book to read. And because of that, ever since I started the podcast, my harvest numbers are way down <laughs> because I get engrossed in the book. So I think the deer, the deer are safe now that I've started a podcast and I'm, I'm deer hunting. But um, well, I don't know, but just the, the whole idea of these stadiums, it just makes me wonder. And here's why I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, if there's no um, fall sports, and here in the United States, the the big schools like Georgia, they get a lot of money from television because it's extremely popular. Massive. What happens if that doesn't happen? That Then there's, there's a cascading effect of money to all the other sports and to the school and into enrollment and tuition payments. For sure. Um I mean, it's it's uh, it's the number one revenue source. I'm pretty. I I don't know if it's the number one revenue source over student tuition, but I'm going to go with it. Probably is. I mean, these are multi-billion-dollar businesses. Um, I, I I think the the easy answer is all those schools have massive back pockets, just full of cash, so they're not going to be hurting. Um, wow. You know, people are still going to be you know doing. People will still be buying things with Georgia logos. They'll still have some revenue coming in. But but yeah, you're you're right. Like there won't be that revenue from ticket sales. There won't be the TV. There won't be the advertising. You know, the other day I was talking to William Ammerman, who wrote uh, the Invisible Brand, and he's a Michigan grad, and his son's at Michigan, and he said his you know son had to come home, and uh, now he's looking at a seventy thousand dollar tuition payment for next year, and he's. He's having to think twice, like millions of other American families thinking. Makes no sense. Yeah, to, for him, for, for the student to sit there in front of a laptop at mom and dad's home. So mm -hmm. it seems like there's going to be massive repercussions. And there's a professor that I follow, Scott Galloway. He's got a podcast. Small professor. You may yeah. have heard of him. Well, a lot of people may not know, but um, he, I, he's got a podcast now. And he's got this fantastic blog. And I just... Um, 
he seems like the most no hold bars, no holes barred kind of person. And he keeps talking about how nothing's going to crash like higher ed in the US. So, I mean, he makes a very good point because just the basic logic of think about this if everyone is now having to do virtual learning, right? And the only separation from what would have been a community college to a major university was the experience of the university. In the end, it's a piece of paper, but really, you know, it's the experience and mm-hmm. all that. It's the same experience. Yeah. You know, you you actually may have more interaction with your professors at a smaller school because it's probably smaller, right? Fewer students. Um, they're going to be just as proficient um, in education. It's I, I, I'm, I agree. Like, but it also, don't we want that? Like, wh- why are we still paying so much money for a college education? It's insane. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, as a you're talking to a guy who just finished paying uh, tuition bills for his youngest, and she came home for spring break as a senior and was told not to come back. She couldn't even do the uh, tuition. So now I want everyone else to have to pay those kind of bills. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's it's so true. I don't know why it needs to be four years. I think I, I keep hearing about how in uh, you know, like Europe, the, it's three years. It's sort of an industrial era approach. And uh, I don't know. It just seems like it's ripe for disruption. And, and not only that, Professor Galloway talks about the numbers of why it's so ripe for disruption. Yeah, he's smart. I like listening to Scott. See, I'm not on a first name basis. That's why I have this podcast. Is I get to talk to people who you know who are on a first name basis with. <laughs> I'm not on a first name basis with him, but I'm just going to call him Scott, and we'll just go with. But he's great to follow on LinkedIn. Yeah. He's got a blog. I think he's even got like a course he's offering. But it's just, um, it's crazy. He must, uh, you know. And I don't think he has to have that NYU job. He's doing it because he loves it. I don't think he. Yeah, I don't think he's, he's the guy he's, that's worried about tenure. He's uh, personally wealthy. He's yes. done a couple of startups and sold. Yeah. Yeah. So briefly, tell folks about the Context Marketing Revolution. Yeah. Um, So the book I wrote, The Context Marketing Revolution, essentially focuses on this one concept, which is called infinite media, which is a term I coined in the book. And it's really the basic concept of games and the theory of games, right? So if we think about marketing as a game, and realize that it's a game that we play based on a given set of circumstances, which I call an environment. And the underlying environment of the marketing game is media, right? It's the channels that we have. It's then how people use those channels and what they expect from those channels. It's the whole combination. Well, what happened was marketing as the game, that the modern game really kind of was created in 1970, right? The Mad Men era when we really got into advertising and branding. Well, that was a very specific environment. And all those games that we created that we we believe are, and I'm throwing air quotes, but you can't see them, marketing, such as truisms that I call them, such as no such thing as bad press, right? Sex sells, uh, right message, right person, right time. These things that we believe were true were really only specific games that were meant to be played in a specific period of time. And what I realized after doing a lot of research is that we entered a new media era. And the difference between these two eras is very critical because what we left was a world that I call the limited media era. And I don't need to get into the the super definitions, but just essentially a world where brands had a monopoly on the media to now where we live in the infinite media era where there is no barrier to the creation, distribution, or access of media. And now, because consumers are the largest creators of noise in the marketplace, and all media channels now operate to create a 
better experience for them, they are now the owners of the media world and it changes the entire game that we must play. And so that's really where the shift is. And then the word context comes in because the focus that we used to focus on was attention. But the focus we need to focus on and what the modern foundation of media is, is context. It's the context of the moment. And so what the context marketing revolution is about is about understanding why we need to give up old ideas of marketing and why we need to embrace a radically new idea of marketing. Uh, And based on a lot of different factors, there's lots of research, but that's really just kind of a brief overview. So it's all about a whole new concept of marketing. It seared a new concept into my Thick skull, and trust me, it's thick. But I seriously, I learned it, and it's stuck with me ever since. And this is what really, really resonated with me from the book more than any of the other ideas is this idea that in June of 2009, I think. June 24th, yeah. Um, there was a point in time, and I guess it was like crossing the equator on a boat where you don't really realize it, but you, mm-hmm. you look back on your charts later and you realize you passed that. But that was the point at which more content was produced on the internet from individuals than from companies. And then the, the curve started going, not straight up, but, but increasingly. Exponential. Uh, yeah, exponentially uh, higher. So that, um, I, I found myself mentioning that uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking to people, trying to help them understand this new world of marketing. Like a company will come to me and they'll say, we got to do this. And I'm having to explain to them that you know, there, there was an old world and there's a new world. Or as David Merriman Scott will say, there's the old rules of marketing PR and the new rules of marketing PR. But what's interesting to me is that ever since I read that book, when I'm talking to a, a business or a client or a prospect or anyone who's is charged with uh, promoting their company or organization or trying to market, it's like uh, it's like there's the whole world is split in two. There are those that think we're still in a limited media era and that you can interrupt your way into the attention of your, whoever it is, of your audience. Like the the client that wants to say, we want to start doing an email to talk about our products and our services. And then there are others who understand that it's you're not competing even with other companies. <laughs> you're competing for attention and you're competing with cat videos. You The, the, the attention is the most precious uh, commodity now uh, in, in our world. Right. And, and and that creates a very tricky problem for people if they don't understand what we're talking about. So we use the a word attention. One, I said we shouldn't focus on it. And then you just talked about how that is a thing that is, you know, a modern problem, right? Attention deficit, right? We need to get people to engage. But it has to be earned. You can't really buy attention anymore, it seems to me. Right. And I think the difference of what we're talking about here is people don't say, I want to give you my attention. What they say is, I have value in this moment that I want to fulfill. And if you help me fulfill that value of this moment, you meet me in the context of this moment, I will give you all of the time in the world, right? I get really irritated when people try to tell me that, you know, you know, a goldfish has a longer attention span than a human. We've all seen that statistic. It came out like five years ago. But then to that, I would simply retort, but wait a second, I just binged three hours of Killing Eve last night, right? Like that's a three hour span of content that I just sat and binged joyfully, mm-hmm. right? So this concept that we have shorter attention spans is not necessarily 
anything other than we have an, a massive amount of content at our fingertips that we can scroll through. We have infinite options, right? So of course we, we will move through it quicker. Um, but that doesn't mean that we won't invest massive amount of time. And really what this means is we must realize that marketing must be done with the audience. And I think that's the big paramount or foundational shift that people don't realize is that now that consumers, right, let me take one step back. The old ways of thinking were all about how I create media and how I make a message so compelling to convince somebody to do something. The reality is, if you have children, you understand that telling people what to do is not an effective way of getting people to do things. What we must realize is now that everyone has the ability and, and the highest value form of the internet is not free publication and distribution of content, it's connectivity between people. And when we focus on that and we help connect people together and we help and we co-create experiences with them, that is how we break through and not only break through, but we build the trust, we build the engagement, we build the brands that we are trying to build. And that's the efficient modern way of doing it is with not on, right? Working with these audiences, not on these audiences. Right. And for me, I wonder if you could explain the context through the lens of why demographic targeting is outdated. In other words, it, 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 those seem like two sides of, this, of, the, of the same coin. Yeah. So I mean, if, if we're talking about demographic targeting from a standpoint of, if you think everybody that's the age of this, 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 and this, whatever target, you could use demographic, psychographic, firmographic. Um, well, like the way we used to buy media when I was an ad guy in New York. I mean, it, <laughs> trust me, there was a captive audience. We could buy a network TV commercial. It would work. Yeah. But we were targeting demographics. Yeah. Um, the reality is, is people just don't want to listen to you anymore. They, they have ways of, of bypassing that. So even if you do want to buy that demographic, um, it still goes back to the foundational problem of you're just trying to tell somebody something and people really don't want to be told anything. Um, that's always been true. It's just now that consumers have greater recourse to get around it. And not only do consumers have greater recourse, we're talking about ad blocking. By the way, my favorite quote of ever is, is I was having lunch with Doc Searles one afternoon. And if you're not familiar with Doc, um, he wrote the Clue Train Manifesto. He, he's a, a Harvard fellow, a brilliant thinker. Um, and and, and you don't know Scott Galloway, but go ahead. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, he goes, and he goes, uh, he goes, so he goes, think about this. He goes, there, and this was, by the way, at this point in time, it was three or four years ago. He says, there's 600 million devices with ad blocking on them right now today. He says, that's the largest consumer boycott to ever exist in the history of the world. Just think about that. Think about what they are boycotting, <laughs> right? And if, we, if you really let that sink in, you, you really can, can say, well, wait a second. I'm trying to, to make this art that gets people to do things that they don't want to do. The reality is, is the world offers a different and better way for us to engage people and do things. And we can change this idea of marketing. And so the concept of I'm just going to target somebody based on some type of factors is trying to say, I'm going to target a message to get you to do what I want, rather than saying, how do I create an experience that meets you in the context of that moment? And, mm -hmm. and if you then use demographic and, and firmographic and different targeting methodologies to help create experiences that fulfill those people's needs and values that they're seeking in those moments, then it's effective. But if you're using that as a targeting methodology to say, I'm going to put something creative in front of you that is going to get you to do what I want you to do, um, that's not in the context of what they seek, then you're going to have dismal results. Yes. If you even get to get it in front of them. 
So an example of context is more about getting found at the right time by the person seeking to solve a particular problem. Yeah, it could be. I mean, context is lots of things. It's it, there's it's what is the what is the goal of the person at the moment? Um, and I may have shared the example of Lego uh, and the the chatbot example um, on the last time we chatted, but I still think it's such a phenomenal example because it it just frames this so perfectly. So the problem is people were going to Lego's website and they were abandoning. So traditional marketing logic, and we're talking progressive digital marketing logic, would have said, use a retargeting advertisement and show them the products that they looked at and we'll get them to buy those products again. But that wasn't really the problem. The problem wasn't that they didn't see the products. The problem wasn't that they didn't know how to get to the products. The problem was that they just didn't know what the perfect gift was. That was the problem they were trying to solve. Help me find the perfect gift. So the context is that. So what they did is they created a chatbot named Ralph and they deployed this on Facebook. And it was an ad that was deployed to anybody that had been to the website in the past 30 days, but not bought anything in the past 14 days. And the ad asked them, if you wanted to have a conversation with Ralph, the perfect gift buying bot who will help you pick the perfect gift, right? Going back to the basic marketing logic of why do we give people three options? Because it's easy to make a choice with three options. It's hard to make a choice with 25 options. And so what this does is the chatbot then goes into Facebook Messenger and starts having a conversation with the people, asking them, who are you buying for? What are their interests? While in real time, checking inventory and saying, this is what's in inventory and suggesting products. The outcomes of this result are the average conversation with Ralph was three minutes. The average order size was twice the average order size on Lego's actual website. And then this program accounts for 25% of all online holiday sales in 2017 because it met people in the context of what they were trying to accomplish, right? It wasn't talking about, let me just give you a creative way to to buy Legos. It was really helping people solve a problem. Mm. So... Matthew, I saw again on your LinkedIn profile, you shared a presentation on marketing in the new normal. Sure. Again, again, you've got this context thing down because the stuff you put there, it's like, well, no, wait a minute. Let me stop what I'm doing. Let me interrupt this client conversation so I can read this. Stop it, Sweezy. You're getting me in trouble. No, but it it talked about, I mean, I went through the whole thing. I went through the whole, I don't know how many. How 45 many? or 48 slides. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, it's the, this Talk is about such that. a cr- we're in such a crazy point in time. I, I think that's, I mean, we all understand that. The problem that we're all trying to figure out is, and I think what we must keep in the forefront of our minds, are we are in a transitional period of time that is topsy-turvy. We will come out of this period of time and things will be very different. But in this current point in time that we are in, we're in this thing that's, that depends on how you want to define it. Um, I like to use the term new normal. Uh, and then when we get out of this, we'll be in the next normal. So, to enter the next normal, let's just put some basic definitions and, and guideposts for conversations for people to use to, to kind of figure these things out. And before you go any further, is it possible, is, is this uh, posted, I saw it on your LinkedIn, but it's also posted where I can put it on your episode show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com? Yeah, there's um there's a link to the all the slides on my website. Okay, um, I'll include all that for the listener. Okay. Yeah, and, and you can like, you know, embed them and do whatever. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, so essentially... The, what we need to realize is we will not reach the next normal. Remember, we're in the new normal. The next normal will, will be reached when we reach the economic output that we had in February of 2020. We're in the dip. Until we get back to that, we are in the new normal. And in so that new experts normal, think it might be another 12 months or? 
uh, on a macro scale, you're looking at guesstimates everywhere from six to 28 months, depending okay. on who's giving you the guess. Okay. Um, this is that much volatility. And it's also even more volatile inside of an industry. You could look at, and there's a slide in there that talks about this, but you can look at the restaurant industry. Uh, and if you're pizza, you're, you're going to hit, <laughs> you will be out of this by the end of the year and actually higher from an economic output than you were at February of 2020. You're not going to be affected, right? But now if you're a fine dining, Fine dining is, I think McKinsey's projecting that fine dining is not going to come back to the economic level it was at February of 2020 until Q2 of 2024, right? Oh, yeah, so, that like, one caught my eye. Yeah, that was amazing. Even within an industry, it's that radically different. Um, so it's very difficult. So anyways, the whole presentation, the whole deck is looking at what consumer behaviors are changing? How are they changing? Um, how do we meet them in this current point in time? And then what should we expect to stick moving forward? Um, and then what strategies should we start to think about as marketers to meet people today, as well as then how do we then craft our businesses to have the fastest and most efficient recovery um, so that we can then succeed in the next normal? Um, and so that's a lot of what that presentation covers. So what consumer trends... Uh, have you seen what's what's changed? Uh, what's going to stick with with consumer trends and attitudes? I think from the largest macro scale, I think the thing that we need to realize is that there's been a new digital baseline that's been set, um, and there's no longer a, a digital laggard. Right, the, the concept of you know the terms that we used to use to denote for technology adoption, um, which would be you know early adopter on the far right, meaning the most progressive, and then the far left would be a laggard. Um, and so you know what we're looking at is people who were laggards had no choice and were forced to adopt technology to do the basic aspects of life. So you can look at anything from um, you know e-commerce. So here's a really fun statistic. Um, we weren't projecting e-commerce. First off, e-commerce at the beginning of 2020 was 15% of all total commerce, right? All total retail. Only mm -hmm. 15% was e-commerce. We weren't projecting e-commerce to reach 30% until 2025. Now, because everyone has been forced to use e-commerce so heavily, we're expecting that to reach 30% by 2023, two years prior to what it was earlier projected. Um, that's because everyone had to change and adopt digital behaviors. Things such as voice. I made the prediction that you'll be, you know, zooming your mechanic um, before this whole thing is over very soon. Well, two weeks ago, I heard an advertisement, and I'm not sure if you have as well, but Lowe's created a new tool for home professionals to use to Zoom with their prospects so they can look at what the problems are inside of people's homes without even physically going into people's homes. Oh, I so, hadn't heard about that. Yeah, and that's being pushed and promoted at a large scale by home improvement store Lowe's, right? So this concept of people have, and I always use the story of my father, and I'm sure he's like, thanks, son, for you know, making fun of me, but he's, he's fun. He likes this. In 2007, dad calls me. I'm in Atlanta. Dad's in Nashville. And my father needed me to look up a telephone number. My father's 75 at this point, so he's a baby boomer. And he's, he expected me to pull out a telephone book and then flip through it to find the number. That was in his mind of what was going to happen in 2007. He calls me. I'm in front of my computer. I just simply type into Google the name of the business. And with you know, in a fraction of a second, I'm like, here you go. Here's the number, Dad. And he's like, how'd you do it that fast, son? And I said, Dad, I use Google. 
And he says, what is Google? And I said, oh, geez, dad, how do you find things online? And he says, well, I just, you know, take whatever I want and that .com. I was like, so shoes.com? He goes, yeah, that's where I go buy shoes. And I was like, oh, geez, dad, this is, this is what a search engine is. Like, he didn't even know what a search engine was. And this was 2007. Yeah, this must be the same experience my kids have when they're talking to me. I mean, different topics, yeah. but they must think, yeah. Yeah, so anyways, <laughs> this is clueless. COVID happens. Uh, my father sends a text to me and my brother. My brother's, you know, just like me. He's super techie. Uh, and he's, and my father says, boys, I think you'd be very proud of me that I am now FaceTiming with my Bible study group. So we're not meeting, you know, because we don't want a bunch of people that are, you know, he, he's in a demographic where we don't want him outside, right? Sure, he's, yeah. he's at risk. Um, so we're like, wow. But the point is, He's a baby boomer. He lives in rural America. In 2007, he didn't even know what Google was. Now he's FaceTiming all his buddies. So what we need to realize is that there is a new baseline for everyone. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to go back to their worlds and they're going to realize that the, the new ways of doing things are just so much more efficient. They're going to, I fully expect my dad to be sitting in the doctor's office and being like, dude, you said be here at one o'clock for my appointment. It's now 1.30. Why am I not in there? And secondly, why did I even have to show up to your physical place? Why couldn't we just do this via FaceTime? Mm-hmm. Like they're going to say, I've changed business. Why haven't you changed? Right. Because these things are, are time efficiency savers. If we look at this from a retail perspective, things like buy online, pick up in store, if you have a retail center, you do not have a choice. You have to have some form of buy online, pick up in store, click and collect, whatever you want to call it, for two reasons. One is consumers want that. What we saw, and this is um, some research that we have from Salesforce, is that businesses that uh, were allowing for buy online, pick up in store uh, saw a 92% increase in sales. Those that did not offer that only saw a 19% increase. What is that? An 8x increase um, in sales? Yeah. Because it's more efficient. Now, here's the other flip side of why you're going to have to have it. Because think about the basic mathematics, right? Let's say you're a grocery store chain. If it's small margin, right? So if 1% of your sales no longer ever come back to the store, they now take place online, right? That's a small number. It's going to be probably much larger than that. But if only 1% never come back in the stores, for many businesses, that means that physical location is now operating at a loss because it doesn't have the revenue to support the massive infrastructure. Hence, now... We know e-commerce, but if you have an e-commerce fulfillment center, that's another cost structure on its own that is not tied to the retail center. But what if the retail center can act as the e-commerce fulfillment store and people are still coming back in? Now you're bringing that economic opportunity back to that retail location and no, it's no no longer a loss. Now it is actually a productive center for retail. Um, So I think both sides, you know, you're going to see that shift that's going to have to change for a lot of people. Um, You know, so I think it just, you know, I think that's the major one is there's a new digital baseline. Everyone's changed. They're comfortable with it. Can you also talk... Uh, about safety, because I've heard about that mm. from some other research, about um, how that has floated up to one of the top priorities for people, and it might not have been in February. So this is such a fascinating topic. Um, and I, I, I caution of, of like how I, I say this just because depending on how you see the scenario of COVID depends on how you personally act in this scenario. Um, and so we have people that wear masks and we have people that don't wear masks. I think we, everyone understands that, you know, it's your choice and people do different things. 
even if you don't wear a mask, those people still are uncomfortable going into restaurants with other people, right? That was a, a surprising statistic. So even if you don't want to wear a mask, those people still are going to wait four to six months before they will feel comfortable going into crowded groups of people like restaurants, um, which I thought was very interesting. So anyways, the question was about safety. Uh, and so if we look at what would it take for someone to get back into a retail facility and what would make them comfortable, the number one issue is safety. Uh, and it's a very basic concept of safety. It's essentially just saying, make sure you tell me that you are cleaning everything and that this is clean, right? That it's sanitary. That's mm -hmm. number one. Asking your employees to wear masks is like 10 percentage points down or lower than making sure that you just let people know that you have a clean facility. Um, and that goes everything from gyms to restaurants, anything that people are going to walk into. Yeah, um, but safety became the number, yeah, safety became the number one concern um, for getting somebody to walk into your store. Hmm. So uh, what should marketers be thinking about? What have they done right? What have they maybe not done right? That's a really tough thing to answer. Um, but let's just go from a macro and, and try to be specific. Well, so, I bought a lot of extra audio tape today at Costco. <laughs> so let me just put another cartridge in. I'm kidding. Yeah. No, I know. it's tape. Yeah, but I think there's some trends that I saw in that report. Again, we're going to include it in your episode show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com. But it, it's, it's interesting. And it seemed to be a slightly longer part of the presentation. Yeah, I mean, I wanted people to understand, like, what what should we be doing? What should we be thinking? So here's yeah. a couple of things. The number one thing is we must realize the way that we structure our marketing departments is going to be very different moving forward than it was, right? This is, it, we talk about digital transformation. And in my book, I talk about marketing transformation. And the book couldn't have come out at a better time for people when it was needed. It wasn't ideal to launch a book in a pandemic, but it's good information that they could, that is tangible that people can do good stuff with. But and you didn't launch it in a pandemic. You didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> right? Beat yourself I up. I didn't know. But anyways, here's the point. Um, if we look at what marketing has to become, one of the big things is that we have to think about how we create marketing in a totally different format, Right. Fashion has already done this. We, we're, we've been in a world of fast fashion for a long time. Fashion used to have four seasons. Now fashion has 52 seasons. Think about how many campaign seasons we used to have, right? And how long they would take to plan, how much time and resources we put into them before we launch them out. The answer is we can't do that moving forward. We have to be agile. Our marketing departments have to be agile. It's the only way that the brands that did do things well, that was the key secret that they had, right? So we, I mean, good example, we had an event um, in Sydney. It was a Sydney World Tour. Um, it was supposed to be 10,000 people in person. 10 days before the event, we decided to make it a fully digital event and pivoted a 10,000 person multi-day track event into a fully digital event and reached a million and a half people. The only ability, the only reason we were able to do that was one, we'd already begun testing video capabilities and, and virtual events uh, prior. So we already had some muscle memory built up to execute technically. The other was that we doubled down on this concept of an agile organization. We removed a lot of the, the, the traditional uh, decision-making hierarchy. Um, we allowed for a lot of more autonomy, but we operated agilely. Everything is going to have to be done agilely, agile structure, agile process moving forward. And even if it's not strict agile, like following Scrum, Kaban, whatever you want, it's going to be an iterative process. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that's, that's the number one thing that people are doing right. Um, the other thing that people are doing really right is talking to customers. I think one of the biggest challenges that everyone faces is messaging of just how fast messaging is changing. In fact, there's been lots of studies that have come out recently that says, if you are still talking and saying the words uncertain times, you're really irritating people. Um, in fact, Gen Z, if you're targeting Gen Z, Gen Z doesn't want to hear anything about this. They simply say, entertain me. They are wanting to be entertained and they don't want to hear anything about Corona. Um, so it just really depends. And so you have to really talk to your audience on a very consistent basis and understand what they're wanting and what they, how they feel so that you can then change your messaging. And messaging has had to change dramatically. And I think I, in that deck, I put like four major changes. Like, on, on like, you know, if we were to talk about what everyone was talking about at the beginning. It was all talking about, you know, you saw all the logos get distanced. Um, they were supporting social distancing. They were supporting lockdown. Nike was talking about working out from home and creating work from home competitions. Then we moved to the next phase um, because they, you know, that, that already runs course. Then you saw a lot of advertising, you know, supporting the heroes, um, which to me is like, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence. It's like, listen, if, if you're, my aunt is a public employee and, so if that's a, you a grocery a store grocery chain? store chain, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like if you want to put up that she's a hero, that's cool. But you know what? Like, why didn't you increase her pay? Like, why didn't you give her better benefits? Why are you still making her work 10 hours a day? Like to me, it's like if you as a brand are gonna put that advertisement out and say hero, you also need to treat your people like they are heroes. <laughs> um, Actions speak louder than words. Right. And, and I think that's where the other thing of this is going to come is those brands that actually follow purpose-driven marketing, which means actions, not words. Words are CSR. Actions are actual actions. They are going to have a muscle memory and come out of this and be much more successful because you can talk to anybody. I think Mark Cuban even made this statement. He says, people are going to remember what you do now for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. right? the, you are building your brand for the next 10 years right now by what you do right now. Um, and if all you're doing is just putting up messaging and not changing your actions, then it, it really is not going to have a whole lot of an impact. Um, so I think that was good. You know, you're seeing brands do that. Um, messaging is having to change fast. Once again, that's an agile thing. And then I think the third thing that people are doing very well, um, and if they're not, they need to be doing, is investing in experience infrastructure. And, and someone asked me, what does an experience infrastructure mean? It's like, it's the basic concept of, you know, you have to have technology to execute experiences efficiently. That may mean uh, virtual infrastructure for meetings. That may mean uh, new technology so that you can, you know, what I call solve the identity crisis, which is merge known and unknown digital identities. So you can create omni-channel experiences across multiple devices. Um, you know, if you're not investing in those and, are not building that muscle memory now, you're not going to have it. And that's going to be one of the key things that's going to get you to the fastest recovery. Um, so, you know, that's what uh, the other things that people are doing very well is continuing to invest in those things and stand those systems up, even though they realize the returns currently are going to be much lower. They're not looking at this as a short-term play. They're saying we need to do this because we understand if we don't, we are going to be very behind the eight ball in 12 months or 18 months. Yeah, you know, uh, as long as you and I are still in the working world and probably even longer, business case studies are going to be written based on what's going on right now. It, oh, it's yeah, so sure. interesting. Yeah. Um, and we're all going to be thinking, oh, I remember that was like two months after it all happened. And you hear about these decisions and it's it's really such an uh, such an interesting time, you know. But 
let's get back to Matthew Sweezy, okay? Not about all this marketing <laughs> stuff and sales. Yes, course. let's talk about me. Let's talk, let's about, talk about Matthew Sweezy, okay? What is Matthew Sweezy, uh, aside from drinking uh, Eventide uh, beers, and and we will include a link to your uh, a website, and can, uh, so I guess people can't buy that stuff uh, remotely. They they can't order. No. Okay, no. we'll get get to work on that, will you? And um, yeah, in your free time. So, uh, what is Matthew Sweezy there in Charleston, South Carolina, doing during this non-travel time to keep himself entertained? Oh, geez, um, reading, trying to put some type of workout structure so I stay in shape, so I don't just feel like a slob when I come out of this. Um, and then we finally opened up our beaches, and I'm a massive surfer, so just trying to surf as much as I can um, and just trying to be as positive as I can. And and I think like you said earlier, um, just trying to have as many conversations with friends and family that I can. Because I think, you know, like, you know, you said your family needs a separation from you. And I think there's two ends of this extreme and you're either one or the other. For people like me who live by themselves, you're either starved for physical connection with other people, or you're on the other side like yourself, where you've got so much of it, you just need a break from those people. Um, so for me, it's really been able to put processes in place where I'm, you know, trying to, you know, have phone calls and, and Zoom calls and, you know, where we can go do so- social distance beers with my buddies in their front yards and, you know, just trying to stay as positive um, and realize that this is a moment in time and this is not forever. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just, that's what I'm trying to do. It's great advice. And you know what? One little hack I've done for trying to stay positive is I have drastically reduced my consumption of, of news. Oh, I mean, yeah, that would definitely make me feel more positive. I just, I just, there's so much going on right now. I'm like, oh, it's so difficult not to, to read about it, look at it, but uh, yeah, well, but here's, yeah. here's just one trick. Um, don't consume, try not consuming any news on television for a week and see what happens. Read it. Well, here's a fun fact. I don't own a television. Well, you have a computer. Yeah, so I guess it's the same thing. It's still a screen. So anyway, anyway, it's um, just a thought there. Well, uh, are there uh, any books, uh, other books in, in Matthew Sweezy's future? I mean, it's too soon to say. I mean, it's it's too yeah, soon think, after, it's too soon after childbirth to be asking about having another one. Exactly right. I mean, any author will tell you the exact same thing. Like, I will never once once you're in the the final stages and you finally get it out. You're like, I never want to ever go through this pain again. That was my <laughs> second book, and and the reality is, is I may do something in the future, but am I thinking about something now? The answer is no. Um, you know, I, I really wonder in the future of like, how do we think about um, education? How do we think about books? How do we think about the transfer of knowledge? Th- there's a really good quote from Ken Kesey. Um, so if you're not familiar with Ken Kesey, uh, he was an author. He wrote a book called One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which was made into a famous movie. Um, if you ever read the electric Kool-Aid acid test, like he put that whole thing on. Um, phen- phenomenal man. Um, he made a quote and he says, you know, if Shakespeare was alive today, he wouldn't be writing with a quill he'd be using a camera. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, I wonder in the future, like, you know, what role do we play with? Do, do books look different in the future? Will we always have books? Like, I don't know. I, I, really don't, I don't know how to answer that question, but 
I'm not thinking about a new book right now. That's for yeah. Sure. Well, I think one. Uh, here's the here's here's the deal. Okay, you don't feel like you have to crank out another one, but when when there's something that probably bothers you or you can't figure something out, then you're going to start digging into it, and you probably won't be happy until you get the damn thing written. Ryan Holiday will argue that's how you know you're an author is when there's something that torments you until you can get it get it out of your system and get it written. As for me, books, I don't know what it is. I'm sure there's all kinds of science behind it, but I much prefer reading an actual hard copy of a book. I mark it up and I, I, I really absorb it so much better than if I have to read it on a screen. And the other thing about reading books, and Mark Zuckerberg agrees with me on this, he tries to do that a lot. Um, <laughs> but he talks about how there's something about reading a book, and I can I, I can affirm this every week. It's like I've gotten to spend a day with an author, you know. Or oh my god, I'm immersed in it. That one sentence that you just said is what made me learn to love reading. As a child, I did not like to read. My parents would force me to read. In fact, like if I, I remember I, I lost my retainers at the Grand Canyon. So my parents like, you're going to work it off. Like all that, you know, however much retainers cost. So I had to work it off. And you know what they did? They're like, you're going to earn money by reading because you hate reading so much. And so I had to read my, that's how I earned. It was like, I, I read and that's how the incentive was. But then once I realized that you can have a conversation with any brilliant mind in the world, just by simply reading their words, yeah. that's what really changed my concept and love for books. Um, and, and it's it's so true. Um, and, and I love books. I mean, I'm a physical book reader, um, you know, and, and I've been trying to read books that are really positive right now, um, you know, so it's like, I love my Hemingway, but it's sometimes like, I don't know, that's really the most positive thing I should be reading right now. But, um, but yeah, so. Well, William Aaron, who I just mentioned earlier, he said, uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I read The Snows of Kilimanjaro. <laughs> so, there's one person who's reading Hemingway and, oh. and one who's trying to uh, avoid it. So. I just, yeah, I, last week I just finished um, To Have and Have Not. Uh, that's, uh, I just love, I, I'm, if you're an outdoorsman, uh, I, I think you love Hemingway. If yeah, if you like to read. Yeah, and you know, so I'm a hunter. I got the beard going on. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> not trying to be. I'm not trying to be Hemingway. You're, you're, you're turning into Nick Adams. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I'm growing the beard purely out of curiosity. Well, listen, Matthew, I really appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you again here on the Marketing Book Podcast in this special episode of Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails, and I hope that uh, you and uh, Everyone in your world, particularly everyone that works at the Eventide Brewery, continues to stay uh, safe and, and healthy. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.